Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Worlds at War, supported by the New Zealand Defence Force. Russia's waging of war in the Ukraine brings back to Europe scenes of aggression and devastation not seen there for decades. It's one of the many instances of warfare in the late 20th and early 21st centuries deploying both traditional and thoroughly modern weapons. David Kilcullen is a former soldier and diplomat, a strategist, counterinsurgency expert and author whose books include The Dragons and the Snakes, How the Rest Learned to Fight the West, and The Ledger, Accounting for Failure in Afghanistan, co-authored with Greg Mills. He speaks with Toby Manhart to discuss current conflicts in the complex global arena, reflecting both back and forwards on how we got to this, what's happening at the front and behind the scenes, and how tensions might play out in the coming months and years. No mai hai mai, piki mai kaki mai. Welcome to the Auckland Writers Festival. My name is Toby Manhai, and it's a real pleasure to introduce David Kilcullen. Dave is a former soldier in the Australian Army. He was a military strategist with the US government specialising in counterinsurgency. An advisor to David Petraeus and to Condoleezza Rice, an analyst, an academic, and author of six books, most recently The Dragons and the Snakes, How the Rest Learned to Fight the West, and The Ledger, Accounting for Failure in Afghanistan. The late, great Mike Davis called Dave the most unfettered and analytically acute mind in the military intelligentsia. Meanwhile, an Al-Qaeda operative called him Petraeus's Australian mercenary. Truth is somewhere in between. A very warm welcome, David Kilcullen. Thanks, Toby. Thanks. It's great to be here. Right. Dave knows a lot of things about a lot of stuff, so I've got about seven or eight hours of questions in front of me, which I'll try to work my way through. Um, We won't get to everything, but we will uh, come to questions from the audience, so look forward to your short, sharp, focused questions a little later. Uh, If you do want to further interrogate Dave, then his books are on sale outside at the store, and he'll be signing afterwards. So go go and grab a copy of one of those. They're all compelling reads, and he will sign them, and you can uh, ask him further questions. This session is uh, supported by Te Ope Katoa or Aotearoa, the New Zealand Defence Force, though they don't have editorial involvement. Uh, I do, though, want to acknowledge the loss of New Zealand soldier Dominic Elevin, who died defending Ukraine while on unpaid leave from the NZDF. Um, Our condolences to his family, friends, and colleagues. And I suppose, Dave, on that note, it's worth sort of saying at the top that, you know, when you write and, and think about war, it's not just some kind of uh, theoretical abstraction. It's a very real thing. It's a very yeah. human thing, and, and it should never be, I guess, an end in itself. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is, um, it's complex stuff. It's real, it, real people die. Um, and you have to always remember that when, you, when you're thinking about um, trying to make sense of it and then putting it on the page, right? Because people will take that and apply it. And, um, you know, you, there's a responsibility that comes with that. Let's, let's start with Ukraine. Um, 
this week just gone, it's the 31st anniversary of the independence of Ukraine and it's the six month mark since the fight to defend that independence began. What do you, what do you, what do you see now when you, when you look at Ukraine? What is the state of things? And I guess, what surprised you about the way it's played out? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. A lot of stuff has surprised me. Um, uh, and a lot of people that, that spend a lot of time looking at Ukraine, and in particular, the decision by the Russians to go, you know, full kinetic in February, launching these, you know, tank columns from five different directions into Ukraine. Most people didn't expect that. Most people sort of expected a kind of incremental um, salami slicing approach, which had actually been working for the Russians mm. very well um, for the last eight years or so. I'm not 100% sure why Vladimir Putin thought that he would be able to get away with it. I, ha I have some ideas. Um, I think they saw the US being weakened and losing a lot of um, credibility with its allies because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan last year. They also saw what they perceive as a very weak president and thought they could probably uh, push him around. But I also think there was a pretty classic intelligence failure. Um, so there's a thing called the FSB, which is the successor organization to the KGB, and a particular bureau of that organization is responsible for analysis of Ukraine. Mm. And that group produced an assessment back in January that said, look, 40% of Ukrainians say they won't fight. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's got an approval rating in the 20s. Uh, the Ukrainians are divided on a bunch of issues, and frankly, if we give them a hard enough shove, they'll, they'll probably fall over. And, you know, a lot of people have critiqued that, but that's people that don't remember what we told ourselves before we went into Iraq, right? So, like, it's a, it, it comes with the territory of, of invading somebody. Um, a lot of tactical things are surprising about how things have played out. Russians massively suck at um, uh, air defense, it turns out. They, they're not very good at logistics. We sort of knew all that, but I think people had come to see the Russian military as having improved a lot over the last 10 or 20 years. Mm. And I think the first few months of the war suggested that they're still having significant issues. I would just say though, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up after this, that um, the view of Ukraine that you get from Western media is very filtered and curated in favor of Ukraine. And it's very important to try to cut through that if you want to understand what's really going on on the ground. Right now, a lot of the media discussion about Ukraine suggests that the Russian steamroller has run out of puff, that they're slowing down. Um, but it's not a steamroller, it's a meat grinder, right? The Russians aren't trying to capture Ukrainian territory and failing. They're trying to destroy the Ukrainian military and they're actually succeeding at that quite well. So uh, what you're essentially seeing is um, the, the Russians failed in their initial kind of move mm. to seize Kyiv. Mm. They then pulled back and went back to a more, much more traditional uh, artillery base, you know, knocking the crap out of, uh, out of the adversary, and th they're, they're doing that. So plan B is working. It's, it, it's probably not working to the degree they wanted it to work, right. but it's certainly not failing in the way that you would think if you only read uh, sort of curated Western views of that. So then... I guess the question comes to, how does it end? 
Yeah, or does it end, right? Or does it end? I mean, I think from the Russian standpoint, it can't end until they take the city of Odessa. People know the, the geography. U Ukraine has a southern coastline um, with the peninsula of, of Crimea in the middle of it. And then the far western end is, is the port city of Odessa. And unless the Russians capture that, uh, it's pretty unlikely they could say they've you know, won the war. Um, if they do succeed in capturing it, they've rendered Ukraine landlocked and that's going to be a very big problem for Ukraine because of its export-dependent economy. But it's also a problem for NATO because, um, uh, you know, it's a cheap analogy to liken it to the 1930s, but if you remember in 1938 when Hitler was given the ability to seize the Sudetenland, part of Czechoslovakia, he just waited a year and took the rest, right? So the Russians could pause the offensive at any point, wait a year and then just start it again. Um, and I think the, the issue is that an acceptable negotiated outcome from the West, for the West is incompatible with a, uh, a deal that the Russians could accept. So I think the danger is that it just drags on mm. and we end up in a proxy war with Russia where we are fighting Russia to weaken Russia, but we're doing it to the last Ukrainian and we're not taking into account necessarily the, the interests of Ukraine. So, you know, short answer is I don't know, but I worry that it doesn't actually end at all. There's a, one of the most compelling passages, chapters in, in the book, in Dragons and Snakes, uh, sees you in um, Finnmark, which is up on the northeast of Norway on the border with Russia. Mm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, but also, of course, your experience there predates the invasion and what that invasion might mean for the sort of people who live on those other border areas yeah. with um, Russia. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Finnmark is um, the northern part of Norway. Norway has a, a border with Russia. It's only a short border. Uh, it's about 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle and there is a, a military unit whose job it is to patrol and monitor that uh, border. And I went out for a few days with that unit and did the link, entire length of the border by quad bike and then by small boat uh, along uh, the river that divides Russia from, uh, from Norway. And actually, one of the more interesting things was talking to the local population, right? Because the, um, it, all borders are, are, are porous and people have close relationships across the border. There's a lot of um, uh, social engagement. People come into... Norway from Russia to buy uh, nappies, right, which apparently neither the Russian nor the Soviet economy has ever been able to make a decent diaper, you know, so people come down into Norway to buy that. Norwegians go into Russia to buy gasoline and uh, vodka, right, because both of those are hugely expensive in, in Norway. So there's a lot of cross-border stuff, and people are pretty comfortable with the Russians, but at the same time, they'll tell you, oh, yeah, there's probably eight to ten GRU, so Russian military intelligence officers operating on our side of the border. Mm. There's a segment of the population up here that's Russian speakers that doesn't necessarily have much love for the government in, you know, 1,500 miles away in, in Oslo. So it's, it's a complex uh, border dynamic. What the war in Ukraine has changed for people up there, I think, is that it's brought much more NATO attention to that area with Finland now and Sweden potentially becoming uh, members of NATO. That actually changes the dynamic a lot mm. for the Norwegian military forces up there. And the other thing is that you now have British and American and Dutch uh, 
Marines and Arctic troops coming up to operate in that area again. So it's all, not quite a return to the Cold War, but mm. it's, um, it's, it's getting back to that. I guess the question for, for in my mind, and a lot of my Norwegian friends will, will raise this, is, is this a new Cold War or is it a new phony war, right? Remember, there was nine months of not very much action at the beginning of the Second World War before the invasion of Norway yeah. right, kicked off the, the Western offensive. So there's some questions there that I think people are worried about. And you mentioned fin Finland and Sweden are now on a, applying for membership of, of NATO, which is interesting insofar as it seems very likely that one of the most, <laughs> the driving motivations for Vladimir Putin and Russia in taking the action they did was to hold off NATO, a fear of encroachment by NATO. I think that is true, although I would say I think even the Russians see Finland and Sweden as different in kind mm. from Ukraine. Um, even, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, made the point in the 70s and 80s that the, the three essential elements, you know, of the Russian world are Russia itself, Belarus and Ukraine. And they, they do see that in a, in a different way. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, in, in the book, which you kindly mentioned, I, I actually went back and looked at the diplomatic documents relating to what was said between Western leaders and the Soviets. The undertakings yeah, in terms and, of NATO. You know, the Russians will say, you promised us black and white that NATO wouldn't move one inch to the east. That's actually kind of true. Uh -huh. like there's, there's, there's nine examples of Western leaders in early 1990 making that promise. Western leaders could say, yes, we promised the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, the situation's changed, right? They haven't traditionally done that, they just denied that it ever happened. Um, but certainly the Russians believe they were given that undertaking, and they've seen NATO expansion since the beginning of this century as just a you know, really direct threat. Um, that doesn't mean it's legitimate, but it, it's real, right? It's not a made-up, fake um, pretext. They, they really do see NATO as, as a threatening uh, entity that's coming right up to their border. Let's... Um Let's leap in uh, time and space back to uh, your upbringing in Sydney, and I'm interested to know what, what it was that drew you to uh, military life. Was that there from a young age? Were you, was there a strategist yeah. ticking away inside uh, you? I don't know about a strategist. I mean, that's, that's a great question, actually. Um, so I graduated from high school in 1984. Mm. Um, I had no doubt what I wanted to do. I had some doubt if I would qualify for the military academy, which is hard to get into. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess from, from when I was young, I was fascinated by uh, warfare, but more particularly the interplay between how societies develop, you know, what happens to us all, and the fact that a lot of that is underpinned by uh, war, right? And we often don't recognize that. I mean, the, you know, expansion of democracy and free enterprise and 200 years of peace, uh, you know, in the Anglosphere, for want of a better term, people forget that that's been underpinned by 200 years of naval superiority by the British and then the American navies. Once you lose that or you, once you forget that actually there's a hard power element that underpins our ability to do things like focus on climate change, focus on human rights, engage in, you know, things that are um, important to us, uh, but they, they all rest on the foundation of military superiority that we're losing 
Um, and that, that's kind of what, that, what the book is about, that we've actually been losing that edge for about 20 years. And I think we're now at a point where you can say it, it's been lost. Uh, so I think we're entering a, a, a new and different time now. And I, I guess I think listening to that, that a lot of people who had that particular interest, fascination, drive would end up going straight to a role in a university. What, but I'm, I'm curious to know, what was it that attracted you? Warfare is a practical skill, right? I don't think you, I, I, it's, it's, people can have an opinion on it without having done it, but I think your opinion is more useful the more you are engaged with the reality of what is involved. And you know, if I hadn't been a combat soldier for 20 years, mm. I would feel a bit reluctant to you know, opine on some of the stuff that, um, that I talk about. But in addition, of course, you know, after I retired from the army, went to work for the Australian um, civilian uh, intelligence community for a while and then to work for the Americans. Um, I've tried to stay engaged on a field level mm. um, as much as possible. I think you can only really write about it with, um, with accuracy if, if you have either been there and seen it yourself or you've got people that are there right now that are, that are feeding you information. So I've tried to work on, on both of those um, elements. Also, you know, um, it's not perhaps the oldest profession, but every society has warriors, every society has soldiers, and uh, there's a certain call it integrity to, to that. You know, it's like being a, a house builder or a farmer, or you know, it's it's not a it's not a not a sort of it's a profession that's not an artifact of a certain set of modern circumstances. Like it, it's an eternal role within society, and to me, that that was important. How did you end up in, in, in Washington, D.C.? What, was what, what joined those dots? Well, so um, went through Duntroon, the Aussie Military Academy, and uh, every officer graduating from the academy has to do language testing uh, mm. for Asian languages. And um, I tested out fairly well in language ability. So after I'd done my platoon command time, they sent me to the language school um, just outside Melbourne to do 12 months of immersion training in Indonesian. And I then ran a bunch of training teams with uh, Indonesian military for a couple of years after, the, after that up in Indonesia. And while I was there, I became aware of a uh, Islamic separatist movement called Darul Islam that had been trying to break away from the secular Indonesian state for like 30 years. And I had actually just started my PhD uh, in some boring topic that I forget now, something to do with defense policy. <laughs> and uh, I went back to the university and said, I just discovered this really, I'd like to do my PhD on uh, Islamic terrorism and, and guerrilla warfare in mm. Southeast Asia. And the army at the time were like, what? You know, this is like 1993. Um, why do you want to do that? I, I didn't have any premonition. I just was interested in it and I spoke the language so I was able to engage with people. Uh, and I spent about seven years or so doing my PhD finished my PhD dissertation as an army major um, uh, eight weeks before 9-11. And the military hadn't given me any time off or any extra you know, assistance or whatever. They'd said, yeah, if you want to do it, fine, but we're not helping you. Uh, but then as soon as 9-11 happened, uh, it was like you know, the shit hit the fan and everyone was like, does anybody know anything about these guys up in Indonesia? And, and they're like, oh yeah, we have a guy. Um, so their forethought, you know. Um, but so I ended up um, being sort of pulled out of the normal mainstream 
army track mm. into the counterterrorism intelligence world. And after a few years of that, I wrote a, a paper um, basically saying, look, the war in Iraq is killing us, right? It, no one believes it's legitimate. <clears throat> We're making more enemies than we can suppress. Uh, the, you know, it doesn't matter how fast we uh, try to sweep up these terrorists that are committing attacks. The war in Iraq is making more of them than we can, we can deal with. We've got to solve Iraq um, before we can do anything else. So I wrote this paper in 04, and a guy called Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy Secretary of the US Department of Defense, read the paper and sort of wrote to the Aussies and said, hey, we want to borrow that guy for um, the, because they, they were at that point coming to the same conclusion and decided they wanted to rethink um, Iraq. So I ended up being embedded in the Pentagon, helping them you know, do that for about a year. Um, and then a CIA officer that I had worked with became the US ambassador for counterterrorism and asked if they could keep me on as the chief of strategy in, uh, in, in their State Department. So I did that for a number of years. And it, like, that to me is a measure of exactly how much of a crisis it was. Right? Imagine a situation where, like I know the Australian government would never do this in a million years. I'm sure the New Zealand government wouldn't either. Imagine getting a, an officer of a foreign intelligence service and embedding them as a senior advisor to mm. one of your mm. political leaders. Mm. Like, it's just crazy. We'd just never do it, right? But they were so desperate. Um, that they were like, yeah, we'll take the guy, you know. So I ended up um, uh, doing that for a while uh, and then went to Iraq, went to Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Somalia, you know, all the... And became quite, quite an integral cog in that kind of the thinking on counterinsurgency. Max Hastings has called you a, the counterinsurgency guru, even. It, a lot of it, yes, I, was, I, am, I am at fault for a lot of it, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 had, I came up with a strategy which seemed like a good idea at the time, which we called disaggregation, the yeah. notion that um, what happens is Al-Qaeda mobilizes local grievances and points them all in one direction and uses that to generate um, uh, massive attacks. And if we can disaggregate it back down to local level, then local governments can handle it and we can make mm. it a, just a, um, a matter of local concern, not a, not a global war on terrorism. Um, I missed two critical things there. One was that um, when you return it to the level of local governments, uh, it then becomes a matter of, uh, I can demonstrate there's a terrorist threat so I can access Western funding, so I can you know, sustain my power. Uh, and this, this has happened in, in Africa and a number of other places mm. uh, where, where the, the war on terrorism became sort of the gift that keeps on giving to autocratic governments. Um, it did work in the sense that it stopped another 9-11 from happening, but I'm not sure looking back we would, we would see that as worth the price. The other thing, um, and we're seeing this now, is that when a government develops techniques to suppress a foreign enemy, those techniques always come back and get applied on the domestic population. Um, and things like mass surveillance, uh, cell phone tracking, uh, biometrics, all these things that were developed for the war on terrorism, for places like Iraq, are now being applied domestically in a lot of countries. I mean, the US is now openly talking about a domestic war on terrorism. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't want to take responsibility for that, um, but I think the stuff that we did, again, which seemed like a good idea at the time, in the moment of crisis around Iraq, in retrospect, you know, probably not so good. I have one more question on counterinsurgency, which is maybe a semantic one, but you 
get into definitions and language a lot in the book, so I'm, I'm curious to know, what, what, what's the difference between an insurgency and a resistance, and what, 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 why do we call, call it an insurgency in Iraq rather than a resistance? What's the difference? Well, the Iraqis called it a resistance, and I actually wrote an assessment at one point saying that a resistance warfare lens works better for Iraq than a traditional insurgency lens, um, but it, that was shut down for political reasons. The Americans were like, if it's resistance warfare, that would make us the Nazis, right? Um, so we're not going to talk about that. But in fact, I think the war in Iraq fits better with a resistance warfare frame. Mm. So the, the, the difference is who initiates, right? So in an insurgent context, the, there's oppression, there's relative deprivation, there may be some uh, ethnic or regional tension. And after some point, you start to see that bubble up into violent action, usually against like outposts of the government. And so you start with this ferment of violence from the bottom up. So the insurgent initiates and the counterinsurgent responds. In a resistance warfare dynamic, what typically happens is there's a conventional invasion, you know, um, and the government gets overthrown and people react to the invader by trying to push them out. So it's actually the, the government or the, the occupying force that's initiating. And that's clearly what happened in Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the, there was no Iraqi insurgency until we invaded, right? We, we created it by going in there. So it, it, it fit uh, a resistance warfare model better. Uh, Ukraine, the same too, by the way. Um, there's significant resistance warfare now developing in Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine. And it's going to look like Iraq, right? Once, mm. once it really gets going. Um, massacres, atrocities, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but that is uh, a reaction to the Russians invading. So it's, it fits that resistance warfare model better. Let's come to the, to the book, uh, The Dragons and the Snakes. That, that sort of central metaphor that, that is in the title, not your coinage. Yeah, so um, the guy that I uh, took that coinage from is a guy called um, uh, James Woolsey, who was the CIA director under Bill Clinton. And in February of 1993, about 15 months after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he was doing his um, congressional testimony where you have to go up and, and have a hearing to get confirmed uh, as the head of the CIA. And a member of the intelligence committee, I think it might have been John Kerry actually, who was on mm. the committee at the time, said to him, you know, how do you, how do you see the, um, the next you know, decade or so after the end of the Cold War? And he said, we have slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union. Um, but now we find ourselves in a jungle filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easier to keep track of. And he goes on for a couple of hours of testimony talking about how um, what we needed to worry about after the end of the Cold War was not large, powerful state adversaries, but weak states, failing states, and non-state actors. And if you look at it, you know, for about a decade after his testimony, that's exactly what we were dealing with, and that was the world that I grew up in as, as a young officer. Um, so uh, I actually called him up and said, hey, can I, can I borrow your, uh, your, um, your, your, your metaphor for the title of my book, and I'd like mm. to interview you and talk about you know, what, um, what you saw. And I even said to him, I'd, I'd like to talk about the Woolsey and security environment. You know, I can name an entire era of world history after you. And he was like, <laughs> by all means. Uh, so. Uh, 
um, that, that the book basically looks at that first 10 years from Wolsey's testimony to the invasion of Iraq as, as a, a snake's environment. Mm. And then I talk about how from 2003 to 2013, which just happens to be another exact decade, we focused purely on snakes, but actually we narrowed our focus to just one snake, this issue of radical jihadist terrorism. Um, and while we were doing that, all of our other adversaries, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, were watching us struggle and fail in the Middle East and figuring out ways to counter um, our conventional military dominance. And from about the middle of 2013, we started to see them come back in as a major threat. So today we're dealing with both dragons and snakes at the same time and in many of the same places. And, you know, it's, it's complex. Yeah, and you lay out how the dragons and the snakes learn from one another as well in this sort of adaptive process, which... Yeah. Which <laughs> which so it's funny, whenever I write a book, there's always a chapter in there where I try to capture some element of theory that, um, uh, that explains it. And usually people find that the least, least interesting chapter and they skip over it. Um, I even have taken now to saying, look, if you're not interested in a theory, just skip the next chapter and, <laughs> and we'll, we'll go to case studies. Um, but it's usually the chapter that I find most interesting to try to frame it. Yeah. And in this case, I took a number of ideas from uh, evolutionary psychology, from anthropology, uh, and uh, from evolutionary theory about what happens when you have a fitness landscape, so a, a, an, area, a, 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 an environment defined by certain characteristics of the environment that punish some behaviours and reward others. And what you tend to see is people... Um, evolving toward peaks in that landscape where they're more effective. And that's, I think, what explains the fact that we see, you know, multiple different actors with different origin points and different ideologies, different styles, all evolving toward the same basic style of how to operate against a dominant, you know, apex predator, for want of a better term, mm. um, in the form of the US and its allies. And over time, that has really invalidated a lot of our traditional uh, superiority. Another, um, it is your coinage, this one, and it does sound theoretical, so I hope that um, I'm not misleading people into thinking it is genuinely a gripping read, but it's a concept that I think is important that you touch on, which you call, call liminal warfare. It's the sort of grey zone, the in-between, yeah. the almost war but not quite war. Yeah. Why is that important? So I, I actually regret calling it that now because uh -huh. liminal is just Latin for threshold, right? And about three months after I had started formulating this, the British Army asked me to meet with them and talk about a lot of these concepts. Yeah. And they then published a, docu a doctrine that's called subthreshold conflict. So they just picked the English word, so we sort of <laughs> just called it that. Um, but basically, in the, in the intelligence business and in, in the sort of special ops world, we talk about clandestine activity where the identity of the person sponsoring an operation and the existence of the operation are completely secret. At some point, you then get into covert where people know something's happening, but they don't know who's doing it. And then eventually, you get into sort of overt activity. With the explosion of cell phone cameras, surveillance, um, the internet, cell phone, you know, just, just the, the what we call ubiquitous technological surveillance, it's impossible now to be clandestine or fully covert, mm. certainly for more than a short period of time. So the Russians in particular have specialized in figuring out how to operate in the ambiguous gray zone between uh, covert and overt. And it's 
essentially a political warfare style of operating where um, everyone knows something's happening. People probably know it's the Russians, but the Russians just lie their ass off, you know, um, blatantly and run what some people call a firehood of falsehood model to just bombard us to obfuscate what they're doing. And they're not trying to be secret. They're just trying to delay our response until they can get done what they want to do and then back off. And I, I talk about a number of examples in the book in, in the Russia chapter uh, about that. That's why Ukraine this year surprised me because they appeared initially to have given up on that model. Only later did it emerge that what they were trying to do on the very first day of the war was to pull off a sort of Crimea on steroids. And if what they did right outside Kiev on the first morning of the war had actually worked, it probably would have looked a lot more liminal, um, but it, it didn't work for them. Um, so they were forced to go to the, the conventional. So yeah, so the idea is basically, some people call it, call it the gray zone, but liminal warfare is a style of operating in the gray zone. The gray zone is the area above traditional statecraft, but below overt warfare. Uh, it's that sort of gray area in the middle. And the Russians in one way and the Chinese in a very different way mm. have really specialized in operating in that environment precisely as a way of avoiding our dominance of a very narrowly defined you know, form of warfare that we call conventional because yeah. we're good at it. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of it is about the definitions of what, what constitutes warfare and what doesn't. You, you also draw, uh, draw on um, a Chinese uh, colonel and theorist called Chao Lang and this concept of unrestricted warfare, mm -hmm. which isn't quite liminal warfare perhaps, but similar in terms of this idea that almost anything can be <laughs> warfare in, yeah, in, in, that, um, in that conception, can't it? So Chao Lang and Wang Shangsui, two Chinese senior colonels, wrote this book, Unrestricted Warfare in 1999. Mm. And the essence of the book is, the Americans in 1991 showed that if you try to fight them the way that Saddam did, you'll be destroyed. So we have to avoid the area of American dominance and go outside of that. So the way I would phrase it is that the Russians are doing a vertical maneuver where they're going up and down in terms of detectability. The Chinese are doing more of a horizontal maneuver where they're getting out of the boundaries of what we traditionally consider to be warfare. So things like economic, trade, energy, um, uh, disease pathogens, um, uh, technological standards, uh, manipulation of law. There's all these things that are brought up in, uh, in the um, uh, unrestricted warfare document, which explain a lot of, th th they've become part of Chinese military doctrine since then. Um, they're not just doing that, they're also doing massive conventional modernization, right? The biggest navy in the world now by number of ships, three aircraft carriers all put into the water in the last decade. You know, they're really growing conventionally, but they're also doing all this other stuff. Um, uh, strategic property acquisition, buying up farmland, you know, things that mm. we don't traditionally consider to be war. And one of the problems with that is that um, even, like, if your adversary has a view of warfare that's much more broad than yours, two really negative things can happen. One is you can not realize that your adversary is in fact running a military campaign against you until it's too late. The other one is you can be engaging in things that you think are just normal peacetime behavior and your adversary interprets them as warfare because they have a much broader definition. And I think that's partly what's going on between the US and China right now. The US itself is hardly immune to 
those kind of extra normal wartime activities though, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I was just thinking of, you know, John Bolton recently casually remarking in a TV interview that oh, he'd yeah. organized a few coups, you know. I mean, that's part of, been part of the US, the Western playbook over time too, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. And there's, there's an incredible degree of um, just lack of self-awareness, right? I mean, I remember when uh, the Russians invaded Crimea in 2014 and John Kerry was the Secretary of State at the time. And he gave a speech where he said, look, it, in the modern world, it is absolutely unacceptable to just invade somebody else's country and take it over and, and to pursue regime change unilaterally. I mean, that's just completely, everyone's like, dude, have you not been paying attention to like what the US has been, you know? So I, I just think, you know, sometimes American exceptionalism mm. translates into a notion that uh, it's okay if we do it, right? And I just think that that's pretty negative in terms of its long-term effects. And it does create the opportunity for somebody like Vladimir Putin to play Western rhetoric back at us to justify things that, that he wants to do. I just want to stay on that point you made too about um, misinterpretation or, or over-interpretation. It's very, really dangerous, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like if we do start seeing everything as an act of war, mm -hmm. the, in a fragile environment, things can, things can kick off. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think uh, this is particularly concerning about both Taiwan and Ukraine right now, mm. where people are sort of acting as if we're, it's already a done deal that there's going to be a war or that we're in a, a, what amounts to a direct conflict with the Russians. And, like, once you start thinking that way, it gets reified and it becomes the thing and people start to react to that. And you can find yourself, you know, in a dynamic where neither side really wants to fight each other, but you end up sort of talking yourself into it because you think the other guy is going to be mm. doing it. And I, I think there's a danger that we go in that direction. China and Taiwan certainly has come into sharper focus both because of what's going on in Ukraine but also activity there. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit recently and the response from China but also other parts of the world. Is that a powder keg situation or are you suggesting that we are at risk of overstating that risk? Well, both, right? I mean, I think it is a powder keg. Um, I think that the risk is that, so backing up for a second, uh, the Chinese had a big debate a couple of years ago. The guy, Chao Liang, who you mentioned, who's, who's now a two-star general, mm. um, gave a speech to a number of other Chinese generals where he said, you guys are idiots. What, why are you talking about invading Taiwan? This is crazy, right? You're going to destroy it. Uh, it's going to be a smoking hulk. It'll take us a generation to rebuild it. It's going to be like West Germany having to absorb East Germany, like if we just give it time, we're gonna absorb these guys peacefully anyway, so why are we talking about fighting? Um, I think the debate in, in China right now is much more short term than people give it credit for. It's around the 20th Party Congress, which is coming up in October, November, where Xi Jinping's sort of legacy and whether he stays in, in office for the rest of his life is gonna be decided. And there's a lot of internal issues going on in China property crisis, a credit crunch, water shortage, um, all kinds of internal issues. And directing that anger outside is, is something that you know, governments traditionally do when, um, when they're struggling. Unfortunately, on the US side, there's a similar dynamic, right, where A, people want to distract attention from a lot of the crazy stuff that's going on in the US. Mm. B, uh, the way that the US military has framed their likely scenario for Taiwan just happens coincidentally 
to create the perfect argument for buying lots more shit for the US military, right? And so there's a very strong political, economic, what you might call a military-industrial complex uh, um, argument for framing China as a, as a major threat now that we don't have um, other threats. I think the issue is bad for the Taiwanese because you, you may end up in a situation where we, just as we are at risk now of fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian, we might be fighting China to the last Taiwanese. And I'm not sure anyone really asks the Taiwanese if they want that. The, coming to one of the other superpowers in the world, New Zealand. Um, it is a rugby superpower. <laughs> I'm going to just acknowledge Formally. That. <laughs> um, the, uh, and, you know, the role of China sort of looms large here. It's been a, a sort of dynamic for a while. The Pacific has obviously become a point of focus, uh, certainly media focus in recent times with China's interest in Solomon Islands signing that deal, attempting to sign a bunch more across the Pacific states, not entirely successfully, and then the sort of, uh, to, to, to describe it as a tug of war in a, in a, in a cliche sense, but for, for the Pacific, but also for New Zealand, I'm interested in your view on that as an, as an Australian who's alert to these things, and Australia has its own relationship with China, which is a bit different to ours. Is the idea of a binary, the idea of a one or the other accurate, or do we overplay that kind of that, that dichotomy? Well, I think there's a danger that we, and I'm talking from an Australian standpoint here, that we yeah. adopt an American framing uh, completely without thinking, hey, you know what, it's actually different for Australia than it is for the United States. And I think it's different again for New Zealand. I think it's quite appropriate for New Zealand to have a different relationship with China than Australia does. Um, the economics are different, the, you know, the, the geography is different. Um, I, I think that we, you know, we, we're, running, we're running into a very dangerous environment where both New Zealand and Australia, our major military ally is the United States, but our major trading partner is China. And if your major security partner and your major economic partner end up fighting each other, that's you know, obviously extremely bad. Um, Australia, though, is in a slightly different situation because it's been subjected to active Chinese um, economic warfare for a couple of years now because of what happened over COVID-19. Uh, and um, New Zealand so far seems to have escaped that. Um, but also, Australia has US military bases that would probably take a nuclear hit on the first day of a war with China, right? So yes, it would be very bad for Australia economically if China fights the United States. Pine Gap also probably goes up in a mushroom cloud and so does Darwin, right? So like, yeah, but we're in the war already at that point. So I think New Zealand, again, it's, it's a different environment. I was, uh, one of my jobs in the army before 9-11, I was the operations officer of the Peace Monitoring Group in Bougainville, which is a joint uh, Australia-New Zealand uh, operation. And I was always extraordinarily impressed by my Kiwi counterparts' ability to interact with people from the South Pacific without a lot of the sort of colonial baggage that um, Australians have, uh, certainly in a, in a New Guinea uh, scenario. And I think there's enormous value to Australia and New Zealand, um, if you like, not being the same, but hunting in a pack, right? Thinking about how do we, how do we compensate, how do we help each other? Um, I don't think that means that it needs, everything needs to be Anzac, right? I think New Zealand's got its own independent role to play, and um, I think it's, it's a valuable one that's seen as valuable by people in, in the South Pacific. Uh, but I think the, the more recent push 
to be more than interoperable, but to actually be able to align and, and interchange is, is important. And it, it's, it's good for New Zealand as well as Australia. And of course, if we ever were to unite, we would be an unchallengeable rugby superpower. And I, I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't discount that. You know, I mean, I just I put that out there. Um, we'll go to questions uh, very shortly, but I do, do just want to uh, touch um, on Afghanistan because you've yeah. spent a lot of your, your life focusing on, on, on that country. <coughs> you, you've been there and you still follow it closely. We're a year, a year on from, from the withdrawal uh, a catastrophic withdrawal after a, a catastrophic occupation, is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Um, right at the beginning of the Obama administration, I actually met with Vice, then Vice President Biden uh, in the Naval Observatory, which is the Vice President's residence. Mm. Uh, a number of people there, about half a dozen of us. And uh, I said to him at the time, look, you can make a strong argument that we should just get out of Afghanistan now. This is January 2009. Alternatively, you can make an argument that we should do properly resourced counterinsurgency strategy in order to stabilize uh, the environment. What you can't justify is a middle path where we do just enough to lose big, but not enough to win. And it wasn't his fault, but unfortunately that is the path that we went down during the so-called surge in Afghanistan where we didn't really do enough to win, but we did enough to make it now a commitment of our prestige and our, um, our credibility, which meant that we were sort of stuck. Um, for Australia and New Zealand, the, the dynamic was a bit different because if we recall, we all went into Afghanistan not thinking that New Zealand or Australia could win the war on our own, right? But wanting to be a good alliance contributor. Uh, and of course, if your war aim is to be a good ally, by breakfast time on the first day of the war, you've achieved that goal, right? So now what? What do you do? And the only thing you could do to undermine that strategic gain would be to leave too early, right? So it's kind of like the audience at a speech by Joseph Stalin, right? You don't want to be the first guy to stop clapping. Um, so we were all kind of stuck there. Mm. And the Americans never came up with a strategy that was able to terminate the war and allow them to leave. Um, and arguably, you know, I'm of the camp that believes we didn't really need to leave last year. Um, it wasn't costing us very much uh, to stay there. Um, but the Afghans weren't getting it together. So we, we needed to do something. Uh, and unfortunately, we chose to, to, to just bail. I've been working, as, as I'm sure a lot of people have here in New Zealand as well, been working with Afghans that we've been rescuing for the last uh, year. They tell a terrible series of stories about what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, women have been thrown back to the, the pre-9-11 conditions. The Taliban have just made it illegal for women to move anywhere in the country without a male escort. People are selling their children for money. Um, you know, they, the Taliban just imposed full face coverings on female newsreaders on, on Afghan television. I mean, it's, it's become a, the, the Human Rights Watch calls it the, the worst women's rights crisis uh, uh, of the century. Um, so I just think, you know, that's very negative, but in addition, there's a, um, a fantasy in the West that the Taliban are actually in control in Afghanistan, mm. and so we need to help them, or at the very least, just tolerate that in the interest of stability. They're actually not. There's more than a dozen armed resistance movements fighting against them. The biggest and most important is called the National Resistance Front, which is fighting in six provinces in the north, and 
uh, attacking yet another two. They're cap recapturing territory from, from the Taliban. So, you know, and, and this is the democratically, this is the former democratic government of Afghanistan that's, that's behind the NRF. So, like, the notion that if we just ignore it, it'll stabilize, unfortunately, is just not, um, not realistic at this point. Well, thank you, Dave. If we can, um, do we lift the house lights a little bit here? There are some microphones at the front of the aisles here. Um, I'd love to, to hear your questions. For one here, hello. Go ahead. Okay, um, questions about the Australian Defence Force. Um, the question's about, does the Australian current realignment envisaging itself as an Indo-Pacific power have any specific spin-off with the um, Australian Defence Force in terms of intelligence and so forth? Or is the current change from Australia being an Asia-Pacific power to an Indo-Pacific power and in terms of force um, projection, is it just entirely a theoretical abstraction? I don't think it's a theoretical abstraction, but I don't think it's a, a real change. It's a change of, of emphasis, right? So Australia... Um, is an Asia-Pacific power, but it's also an Indian Ocean power and a Southern Ocean power. Uh, and Australia's you know, had that reality for a long time. I think AUKUS, the new Australia-UK-US technology agreement, and the fact that the Americans are trying through the Quad to partner with the Indians more closely has driven that change of um, discussion. But it doesn't, I don't think it shifts very much the, the capability. The big change in Australia is they've, they've started to really invest a lot more in building up uh, the Defence Force and recognise that we may be in an you know, immediate precursor to a major war, so that, that's the big shift. Thank you. Should go over here. Hi, I wonder if you could talk about the implications of the um, tragic, unfortunately plausible return of Trump and how that might play out. He had a strong man reputation, but it was often kind of backed down in his term. The thing about Trump that was difficult for our adversaries to deal with was that he was incredibly unpredictable. Um, so if you want to run this kind of liminal warfare style approach, um, you want to have a clear idea of, about what's going to trigger a response um, from the US. And Trump was very difficult to predict like that. I mean, some mornings he'd wake up and be like, yeah, you know what, let's not worry about the Iranians. Uh, another day, he's like, right, kill Soleimani, you know. So you, you didn't really know what you were going to get. Uh, the other thing is that under Trump, the uh, US permanent bureaucracy didn't really follow the direction of the president. Uh, Trump uh, wanted to pull out of Syria, told the US to pull out. Uh, two very senior people resigned as a result of that. We're still there. Um, the, no withdrawal ever happened. So th there was a sort of uh, difficulty for people in predicting what... Um, the, the impact would be. I think that if, if Trump does run for 2024, there will be instability in the US uh, and potentially violent unrest in the US that probably dwarfs what we saw in 2020. Uh, and I think the likelihood of adversaries trying to take advantage of that would be very high. Um, so, you know, that's... Yeah, you could go into a lot more detail on, on Trump, but I think that's, that's the sort of top line. Thank you. Yeah. Should come back across here, please. What is America doing in Africa? You mean why are they there, or what are they doing? Is it, is it purely uh, sort of um, counter-terrorist, or is there a 
sort of a, a colonial territory taking large you know uh, a power game going on there so there is a power game it is territorial i don't think it's colonial in a traditional sense um the u.s created africa africa command in 2005 it was based in germany uh initially and the, the headquarters are still there but they created a forward position in djibouti on the on the red sea a couple of years after that they now have uh operations all over africa focusing on counterterrorism and africa is in fact the fastest growing continent in terms of terrorist activity mozambique somalia north africa the sahel which is the area south of the sahara that's probably the fastest growing areas for islamic state and al qaeda there's a chicken and egg dynamic there though right i mean it may very well be that the fact that the us is flooding money and all that stuff in there is precisely why you're getting a lot of terrorist activity right but i don't think that the americans uh, have a long term plan to create you know territorial dominance over africa it's much more short term tactical focused on counterterrorism objectives that said china has been extraordinarily active economically and in terms of building relationships in uh in africa since the turn of the century and increasingly now there's a sort of african version of a great game going on between china and the united states so i think they probably would have presence there anyway for counterterrorism but it's more than it otherwise would be because now it's a competition with the chinese um so yeah that thank you not really an answer but that, that's how i see it yeah we're rattling through this traffic one over here please i've got actually got a couple of questions let's go for one can we please because there are others waiting first was you mentioned earlier on in your piece about the fact that the western nations militarily have been superseded um and you express some doubt about whether they would recover the question is do you think i think you said it was over the last 20 years i assume you're referring to china do you think well are the western nations trying to recover and will they regain superiority so the short answer to that is probably yes and then no right i think that they are trying to regain superiority but they're doing it by doubling down on a particular approach that so they they're trying to do it harder um instead of do different things and i think we're already at a point where adversaries have figured out how to avoid our traditional strength so the the harder we do our traditional stuff the the worse it's going to get so unfortunately i don't think we're going to see a um a, a recovery of that very dominant position that the west had for a couple of decades thank you over here please are you concerned and should we be concerned that if putin felt maybe he was losing in the ukraine or felt under threat that the nuclear option would be something he'd consider i th- i certainly think that that the russians think about nukes differently to how western countries do and i actually talk about this a bit in the book and i think that if the russians did feel that they were losing they certainly would have no compunction about um using tactical nuclear weapons uh for battlefield advantage there are two things stopping that right now one is they actually think they're winning and that they might be right um they they're not gaining more territory but they are doing much more damage to the ukrainians than they are suffering and i think they think look we're doing fine now with just conventional artillery so there's no need the other one is just frankly the fact that the prevailing wind direction blows back into russia from from southern ukraine so that that's a that's a negative if you're going to get a launch a nuke um so you know <laughs> we've got that going for us we've got we've got we've got two more and i think we can squeeze them in one of one of here first thank you um, 
I, I, I'm just interested in um, if you would have any comment or views on white nationalism. There's a lot in the international media around, um, you know, Putin and Russian approach and their um, undermining of um, Western democracies, particularly in Europe, around white nationalists. But we have our own particular New Zealand experience from Australian white nationalists. Mm -hmm. um, just if you have any thought about that and, and what that means, because a lot of what it sounds like your background has been over the 30 years of... Um, you know, sort of Asia and Southeast Asia and things like that. But I, where's that heading and what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I won't mention his name, but the, the shooter in, in uh, Christchurch uh, took a lot of his ideology from a European strand of thinking that was also behind a big attack in Oslo a number of years ago. Uh, there's no direct evidence of the Russians promoting that or um, starting, starting that. It's, it seems to be self-generated. But what we do see from the Russians is that they um, sponsor and promote uh, different groups on different sides of politics in order to reduce uh, unity in the countries that they see as adversaries. So a good example, in, in Greece, the uh, Russians provide money both to the extreme far right groups and the extreme far left groups, right? It's not that they favor one over the other, they're trying to uh, break up unity. Um, I think that it is very important for us to acknowledge and deal with um, grievances and drivers of violence and do it in a way that reduces the temperature. Um, but we should also remember that there are external adversaries that want to exploit that, you know, so it's, it's not solely a domestic thing. We could talk for hours about this one topic, but yeah, that's just a short. Very, very last one. We've grown over time already, so I'm pushing it. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, I'd like your views on how kleptocracy and corruption impact military operations with particular reference to the Russians and the Ukraine? Yes, well, both the Russians and the Ukrainians are extraordinarily corrupt, right? Um, both those nations have a long tradition of uh, kleptocracy. And in fact, one of the problems we're having now is the supply of weaponry and support to the Ukrainians with very limited uh, accountability. Uh, and I think that could potentially be a problem going forward. Um, but I would just say that uh, the, the one way of thinking about this is the notion of conflict entrepreneurs, right? People who rise to a position of power and profit through the existence of a conflict, which means they've got no interest in ending the conflict. Um, they want it to keep going for, you know, for, for their own benefit. And you see that with Western arms manufacturers, you see it with Western politicians, and you very much see it with you know, quote unquote, warlords on the ground in these conflicts. And unfortunately, the longer a conflict goes on, the more hatred and anger develops amongst the populations, uh, the harder it is to go back, and the more of these conflict entrepreneurs emerge so that conflicts become entrenched. And, you know, Afghanistan that we've been talking about today is a classic example of that. A lot of conflicts in Africa that are in the same boat. I, I worry that Ukraine might be heading in that direction also. Thanks. Thank you very much for those excellent questions. Um, any more? Follow David outside at the bookstore. David Kilcullen. Thank you. Kimakoto Kato. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.